morning, good morning everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, <laughs> it used to be that that was a time when anything could happen. Now, of course, it's all going on 24-7. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about construction. We're going to be talking about building materials. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, the length of unsupported spans and uh, uh, all kinds of things like that. And it really is totally, unfortunately, tragically coincidental that we have a major problem going on in Miami tonight. Um, you're obviously all aware now that uh, a couple, three days ago, uh, there was a major stunning apparently, and we'll get into the apparently part in a second, um, unsignaled collapse of about half of a major condominium high-rise uh, just north of Miami Beach, uh, on the beach. And um, this has caused all kinds of anguish. There are something like 120-some persons who have been uh, located and who are alive and well. There are 159 who are still unaccounted for. And I believe that the last tally I saw before we came on the air, five now confirmed deaths. This is incredibly tragic because it's this unknown. It's that long drawn out day after day unknown. The one of the anomalous things that I've been noticing in terms of the coverage is that when you have an earthquake, in some part of the world and people rescuers rush and start pulling people out of the rubble you have you know people who survive people who are in air pockets people who are in trapped v-shaped uh, areas of slab concrete so there's a there's an airspace and they're protected from physical injury from things falling on them that's not happening in this case this this building pancaked down in fact if you want to see it in real time, you go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on the banner tonight for uh, uh, June 26th, domes across the solar system. That will take you to the guest page. Uh, right under the guest page, you'll see uh, where it says fast links. Click on my items. That will take you to my section down below of radio with pictures. Item number one um, there's a brand new building that was built in front of this condominium, which was built over 40 years ago in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, 79 to 80, 81, somewhere in that time frame. So it's over 40 years old. In front of it, um, there's there's another building that uh, was is much newer. It's only four or five years old. They have color security cameras uh, looking over the tennis courts and the pool and by by chance uh, there's a stunning video of the actual real-time collapse caught on that security camera so that's item number one item number two I mean there's a tremendous amount of speculation as one can well imagine I've had all kinds of emails from people who are saying oh it's a directed energy weapon oh it's like the World Trade Towers it's the bad guys upstairs taking a no 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 let's go back to first principles how do we know what we know 
Coincidence in time is not knowing anything. I mean, just for an example, just for the, the you know sake of argument, let's assume somebody wanted to do this as a distraction. Why is it Miami? Why isn't it downtown New York? Why isn't it Trump Tower? You want one hell of a distraction that would preoccupy the world for weeks figuring out what happened? Why didn't someone take down Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, tying up traffic in Manhattan, tying up political conversation, tying up all... In other words, if someone is doing this, why pick an out-of-the-way, totally unknown 12-story condominium in retirement country in Miami, Florida. However, as soon as I saw the geography of the landscape, uh, which you can get if you skip two, three, and four, go to, go to number three. This shows you satellite images before and after the uh, building collapse. Right there, I think, is an obvious major huge clue to why Miami and why this building and why that side. Because as soon as I realized it was on the ocean side, for those of you, I mean, I'm currently living in a desert, but I used to live, you know, by the ocean, uh, both in the Bay Area and I've spent a lot of time in Florida in the summer in very, very humid, humid, humid. That's the key, humidity. And because these buildings are right on the beach, when you have hurricanes, even when you have major storms, you get a phenomenon called salt spray. Now, salt water is incredibly corrosive. These buildings have steel frameworks covered with concrete. In fact, um, there's a very interesting video at the very end of my uh, uh, section tonight on the uh, on the uh, situation, it's number four. Um, this is a building um, uh, expert. He's a constructional engineer. He has put out a YouTube video explaining all of the potential failure modes and why um, it is most likely. And obviously, we will not know until months and months and months go by and there's a tremendous amount of analysis but it's looking more and more to me like it was salt water corrosion that attacked the steel because this building is not a a, a steel girder frame with concrete over it it's uh, something called um, tension slab construction which means when they uh, pour the concrete around the steel. The steel is put in tension, mechanical tension. The concrete cures, and then the tension is built in, and it's the tension of the steel wrapped in the concrete which keeps the structure up. If there is a failure mode like saltwater corrosion of the steel and the bonding between the concrete and the steel changes or fails, um, you're in for disaster. And the fact that this has never happened before, well, we're, we're, we're talking in the country now a great deal about infrastructure. We have spent no real money in this country on infrastructure in decade after decade after decade. I mean, we the inter interstate highway system was built back in the 1950s. Now, portions keep being repaired, 
but the bridges haven't been repaired. Are we seeing kind of like the MTB, you know, meantime between failure, MTBF, uh, of old architecture, certainly on a seacoast exposed to general salt air and salt spray and even hurricanes, which of course drench these buildings periodically. Um, are all these factors, have they all combined? Well, the good thing is we're going to know. The bad thing is uh, less than a mile away up the street, up Collins Avenue to the north, there is a twin of this condominium built at the same time by the same developer with the same construction crew and the same materials. So the mayor of Surfside, which is this, you know, sub sub um, um, satellite of Miami uh, suburb, um, has seriously been discussing in public that everybody in that condominium probably should vacate. Now, there is one additional element to put into the mix, and that is a few days ago when the U.S. Navy was testing um, – uh, the uh, uh, Gerald Ford, the latest aircraft carrier to join the fleet, they detonated something like 40,000 pounds of TNT 130-some miles from Miami offshore out in the ocean. And there have been some people who said that that might be a contributory factor. Well, it would be if anybody had detected an earthquake. But an earthquake at that distance, you know, would have attenuated uh, enormously in the 130 miles. It was a very superficial explosion. It wasn't buried, you know, in the mantle or in the crust. It was, you know, in the ocean a few hundred feet below the surface. So the primary means of, uh, of transferring the shock wave would have been through the water. And, uh, you know, shock waves and sound waves attenuate uh, fairly rapidly in water. Uh, they go further in uh, in land, but the ocean is very deep, you know, beyond the continental shelf. So I really think we can probably rule that out as one cause. But all of these things will be looked at. The thing that I think is silly, and I wish people would stop doing it, is they keep going to the most extraordinary, outrageous hypothesis with no real evidence and the logic against it, because we're living in a fact-free zone. Evidence doesn't seem to matter anymore. It's kind of like your preferred theory of the month. I'd like to stick to the old-school way of doing things, which is you accumulate evidence. Let me give you a piece of evidence, which I think is highly relevant. If you go back to my section, item number two, it turns out in 2018, which is three years ago, and engineer did a major structural study of this specific building based on complaints from various residents and found all kinds of deficiencies from cracked concrete to um, uh, oxidized rebar to to you know underground cracking in the parking garage uh, I don't know whether you remember but uh, uh, Robin, you know, has relatives who live in Miami, and I visited there many, many, many times. And, you know, when I was working on the Miami Circle, which is uh, also, you know, kind of south of uh, Miami there on the ocean. And corrosion is a major problem, and groundwater is a major problem. 
because the groundwater is like two feet down. The whole of Florida is basically made out of what's called oolitic uh, limestone. This is limestone, calcium carbonate, deposited by millions of little organisms over millions of years, and it's full of holes. It looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, and it's not very strong. So in order to raise these skyscrapers, and a 12-story condominium would have been considered in the uh, early 1900s a skyscraper, if you'd build it in Chicago or New York, they have to basically sink pilings deep into the bedrock, which is, of course, this oolitic limestone, which does not have a lot of structural strength. So they make it up by driving the pilings very deep. That, in turn, creates other potential. In other words, let's wait for the complex and very exhaustive uh, report. FEMA's involved. The USGS is involved. Uh, obviously, the uh, uh, fire and rescue locally who are still trying to do rescue on, on potential survivors buried in the rubble. I must say that in, in when I looked at some of the aerial shots from the drones of the helicopters, that there are portions of this collapsed structure which remind me eerily of the same kind of pancaking we see in, of all places, on the planet Mars, particularly in Gale Crater, where we've had a rover for the last several years exploring remotely, robotically, what I and my colleagues believe firmly is an ancient, huge, collapsed arcology that was built on Mars millions of years ago. And because of the environmental conditions, a lot of it is lying there, visible to the discerning eye if you know how to look at the engineering. And it's all incredibly ill-timed for our discussion tonight, which is going to be talking about construction on other planets, starting with the moon, across the solar system, as evidence of this extraordinary ancient super-civilization that I've been proposing now for well-nigh on 40 years since I discovered the ancient Arcology City to the west of the face on Mars back in the very late, no, actually early 80s. Gosh, how time does fly. Um, what's interesting is this weekend, as opposed to any other weekend that we would be discussing this stuff, it is against the backdrop of something very intriguing, which happened simultaneous with all the coverage of the uh, uh, Miami condominium collapse, but of course has gotten almost no notice. And that is the long-awaited Senate intelligence report, which was submitted to the Senate from the uh, office <clears throat> of uh, the Director of National Intelligence, one of the 17 coordinating agencies for the U.S. government, which gather intelligence all over the world, and as you're going to see in here, even off this world, um, they submitted their report to the Congress, to the Senate, on Friday. Now, Friday afternoon is typically known in the news business as the memory hole. If you release something on Friday and you don't have a lot of money to promote it, odds are it's going to get missed because people leave for the weekend. Uh, there's new crews coming in. Um, old anchors or 
away for those two days. Uh, people change staff. You know, the other shifts come in, old shifts go home. So it's a great way to bury news of things you want to get lost in the onslaught of 24-7 news to which we are all now subjected to. And as soon as this occurred, there were people who were saying, again, without a shred of proof, that the Miami collapse had been engineered by someone with a, you know, ray or energy technology to help with the distraction from the Senate report. Again, evidence, please, evidence. Now, why was this Friday, the 25th, chosen for the release of the um, director of the National Intelligence uh, Agency's report uh, to be released? Well, that I think you can trace to good old political savvy in Washington because it's very obvious from a whole bunch of different directions that this report is something that the uh, uh, mainstream intelligence community, the so-called deep state, those that have been suppressing the reality of extraterrestrial visitation and who's really flying UFOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going back uh, 75 plus years now, it's very obvious that they would like to bury this under as much distraction and noise as possible. So the way you control that in the real world is you release it late on a Friday afternoon, hoping that no one will... Well, I don't think that's going to work for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, there are several people who are already making comments, and they're very high-visibility high people. One of them being Chris Carter. Remember who Chris Carter is? The creator of the X-Files? Um, he's a little cynical about what's going to happen with this report. Um, his complete comments, well, as complete as can be in an abridged story that is um, abstracted from the New York Times, which has a paywall. So unless you subscribe to the New York Times, it would have done us no good to put up the New York Times story, which I think was an op-ed piece that uh, uh, Chris Carter was asked to write. Um, however, there is a very suitable uh, story of the story at Yahoo, so that's what we've linked. Um, I'm a little more optimistic, and that's why I put up item number seven, which I thought was really curiously framed because the writer of this um, uh, at Axios, which is a major political uh, news site these days, for basically political news, um, their headline is, no matter what the UFO report says, notice they're using the old term UFOs, not UAP, unidentified um, uh, phenomenon, uh, unidentified flying phenomenon, whatever. Um, no matter what the UFO report says, the headline in Axios, the damage is already done. Now, I find this a very interesting take, the damage. This is written by one Miriam Kramer. Why does Miriam Kramer think that this report is somehow going to do damage. Well, you got to read her, her, her story. Um, and she actually makes very clear. Um, she says under the why it matters, instead of tamping down anxieties and conspiracies, remember, conspiracies now are the new bad guy, uh, it's possible the release of this report will actually stoke them, even if it says they're unfounded. 
Uh, and then she goes on, with this report, the government is telling people there is something that is potentially threatening. They're also telling people that they were lied to for about 80 years, said a psychiatrist, uh, Ziv uh, Cohen, uh, in an interview with Axios. Going on, he says, I think the problem is when the government tells you that they were lying, then that makes people naturally think, are they telling us the truth now? Uh, we're not going to spend real any time tonight, except I'm sure my guests tonight will have some opinions, so we'll freely entertain those. But tomorrow night is going to be Senate Intelligence Report Night. I've got um, uh, Steve Bassett and uh, Joseph Bookman back for a repeat performance now that we have real data, now that the report is out there. And we will go into the rather intriguing details which are intriguing. I mean, it's it's like there's as much to talk about in terms of what this report does not say as there is in terms of what it does say. I, I, I will end on this note, and that is um, what they do forthrightly is they bring up the possibility, and I actually uh, uh, said this in my uh, uh, promo for tonight's show, there's one key paragraph that I want to kind of quote, which is um, the the uh, the report does talk about um, disruptive technologies. In fact, let me see if I can quote exactly. From the report, UAP, the new name, would also represent a national security challenge if they, UAP, provide evidence a potential adversary has either developed a breakthrough or disruptive technology. So a little decoding is useful here. Breakthrough technology um, implied but not said would be conventionally fueled, something that could allow uh, the Tic Tacs, for instance, to you know, bob around the uh, uh, U.S. aircraft carrier fleets in both the Atlantic and Pacific for hours and hours and hours, I think up to 12 hours, uh, at one stint, whereas the F-18s have to go back every hour and refuel. Or, here's where the disruptive technology comes in, full anti-gravity. I mean, this, seriously, l look at what they're saying in a very Emily Dickinson fashion between the lines, telling it slant. They are raising in the midst of this very, 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 very dry, and it's as dry as, as, you know, the dust on Mars, this very dry report, they raise the serious possibility as a challenge to national security of a disruptive, that is, anti-gravity technology manifest in these 140-some sightings that the report actually goes into to list. Now, let me tell you why this is a breakthrough. Because with that one little sentence, disruptive technology, they are literally talking about the entire ball game. Because, as I say later in the promo, not only does anti-gravity give you spaceflight anywhere in this solar system in hours or at the most days without expending fuel, in other words, unlimited range and unlimited acceleration, 
except for what the pilots, the human crews, can stand. And even that may be amenable to uh, anti-inertial derivatives of this anti-gravity control. It also gives you, and we can kill the camera, thank you, it also gives you um, extraordinary possibilities for building. I'm not talking now about skyscrapers 12 stories high, going back in this eerie, tragic coincidence tonight that we're having a major building story at the lead of our news. I'm talking about building things for the future based on control of gravity and inertia and materials that would literally allow human engineers to build skyscrapers tens of miles tall, even on Earth. Remember, Frank Lloyd Wright, back in the 1920s, back in the era of the beginning of the use of concrete and steel, proposed within engineering practicalities at that time, building in Chicago, which at that time was the home of the vaunted skyscraper, uh, America's extraordinary contribution to architectural arts. He proposed on Earth in the Windy City, where there are extraordinary temperature extremes, there's wind loading, there's there are even earthquakes from time to time. Think about the Madrid Fault. He proposed building out of steel and concrete in the 1920s a mile-high skyscraper right here on Earth with 1920s construction techniques and technology. Imagine if we can control gravity and inertia and metamaterials, the, the, the magic three, as is evidenced by what the Senate Intelligence Report is manifesting as real 21st century scientific contemporary daily observations now of vehicles that are plying the airways over U.S. battle fleets, you know, centered on aircraft carriers with lots of other ships around them. Imagine if we could harness that technology to build bigger and better things like self-repairable construction, self-healing, smart architecture, where every part of the building knows what every art every other part of the building is experiencing and either sends in you know alerts and warnings to a central you know control center in the building or just automatically out of materials available in the environment with nano and 3d printing technology it simply repairs itself and of course the scale on which this could be done given the idea that one can control somehow gravity, is almost unimaginable. Such a technology would make it trivial to contemplate a dome like we've discussed on Mars and will again tonight, 30 miles wide and 7 miles high over Jezero Crater, or perhaps even a dome or a doming technology which could in fact 
encompass the entire surface of another planet or a moon, a solid moon like Luna, or as you're going to see and hear later in the morning, you're going to we're going to talk about an extraordinary confirmation of a dome over the ancient moon of Jupiter, the largest um, solid body uh, in the solar system that's a planet bigger than Mercury, the satellite of Jupiter known as Ganymede. And on that note, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, we'll be joined by a number of guests to talk about domes across the solar system. Don't go away. So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison's a poison. Now this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the global list have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155, but anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland and of course our right brain. So what happens is excess deuterium makes us sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it, so you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. It help, we don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is a single biggest tool that the globalists, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state 
that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, June 26th. Yeah, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, domes. We're going to be talking about another extraordinary, unusual phenomenon that uh, has been discovered in Yezero Crater on Mars. Whether there's a dome there or not is almost irrelevant because the phenomenon itself stands by itself. And we've got uh, uh, Holger Eisenberg, who is going to be regaling us with, with the details. In fact, uh, although he didn't find it, he's assembled the most interesting uh, evidence that, of its un, unusual uh, characteristics. So let me kind of give you a little thumbnail as to who Holger Eisenberg is. And we will do this, and then we'll do that. Holger has done system operation and consulting around Java-based enterprise applications since 1999 in Germany and moved uh, in 2016 to Silicon Valley. He's now solving customer problems at a company specializing in providing high-performance Java. In his spare time, he is applying software engineering skills on public data provided by Mars and other spaceflight missions, uh, encompassing a number of uh, governmental uh, programs, including uh, NASA and ESA and uh, the Indians and many others who are out there. The Chinese now, of course, have landed their uh, spacecraft, Zerong, on um, on Mars. Um, about, what, uh, maybe almost now two months ago. I kind of lose, lose track of time. There's so many things going on. Um, so anyway, without further ado, let me welcome uh, Holger to the other side of midnight. Holger, are you there? Say again. I'm here. Hello. There yeah. you are. There you are. Good evening. Okay. Um, let me also introduce uh, Ron Gerbron. Uh, Ron is our resident generalist who, um, you know, I, I'm continually impressed with Ron's range of information on a wide variety of topics, although I will say that he seems to spend a lot of time on archaeology, which, of course, for what we're trying to do is very appropriate. And he will have some comments tonight on several of the items that we've been discussing. I'm sure he has some thoughts about Miami. And uh, so without further ado, Ron, welcome back. Oh, hi there. Uh, yeah, I Anthropology note, the recently discovered skull that was in the news this week uh, from China, the 
Dragon Man. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. I, I totally missed it. I've been so focused on getting ready for tonight and obviously trying to follow what's going on in Miami because of uh, Robin's connections. That Right. What was discovered in China and when? Oh, they, well, it was actually found in 1930. They, a, ah. uh, you know, the Japanese were overrunning parts of China at that time. And the, um, so they had pressed a local Chinese fellow uh, into service cleaning up something. And he was digging out the foundations for a bridge. And in a mud bank, he found this entire intact skull. So he wrapped it in he wrapped it in something and hid it away so that they wouldn't take it, and wait, wait, wait. It ended up. In so so who who wouldn't take it? The Japanese? Yeah. Ah, okay. Just a, you know, item of interest. I mean, didn't you see um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five where they picked up the uh, Dresden figurines and got shot for their trouble trying mm. to save them? Uh, yeah, the uh, something like that, I suppose. Anyway, who and I I've never been into Kurt Vonnegut. I'm sorry, I've. Of all the people that I've read over decades and decades, Vonnegut kind of leaves me cold. I I just don't know why, but never did he, it for me. He seems, a, yeah, he seems a little bit insufferable. <laughs> no, I was talking, I was talking about the movie. Uh, the um, but I I'm sure that's in the book. It was supposed to be a personal anecdote of his from World War II. Uh, anyway, in the case of this one in China, uh, under this bridge. The, uh, he finds this big skull, and he hides it away, and it ends up in a museum, and uh, it sits there for all these years. And just last week, uh, they said, oh, well, we've been looking at this, and now we've decided that the new species... Whoops. Did we lose Ron? Oh, God. I love technology. Okay, uh, Ron will rejoin us momentarily. So that will give me a great window to introduce the third member of our triumvirate tonight. Uh, Tim Saunders is a British national who grew up near the south coast of the United Kingdom. I'm back. And you're back. Oh. Okay. All right. We will. We will. Uh, Sorry. We'll, we will put Tim That's on hold. Second time already, and the show's only half an hour old. Um, anyway, it's not. It's a Denis. It's a Denisovan skull. Is the oh wow. You, so you're going to have to tell and, people what. Denisovans or Denisovans or however you pronounce it, what they are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, then let's see. How can we do this without wasting any time? Uh, in 2010, they identified, uh, that is, people researching DNA extracted from things like ancient teeth, uh, this, uh, discovered that there was a new species. It had been cataloged with miscellaneous old precursors of humans uh, in the troglodyte, troglodyte box. Uh, for a long time, but um, they said, oh, and it was from, uh, they discovered it was a unique, different species, which got named after the place that it came from, which is what you do, which is a cave in Siberia called uh, Denisova, and that in Russian means Denis's cave, <laughs> but I, the Russian pronunciation is probably Denis, so I keep saying Denisovan, and I notice some people do, and some people say Denisovan. Uh, I'm ambivalent on that, but whichever wins, yeah, fine. Anyway, that's what it is. So it's until the, now, not... we only had a few, well, I think finger bones and maybe a leg bone or something, uh, you know. Which one could, leg bone, one tooth, yeah. Which could be represented on a small coffee table. Our sum total of Denisovan um, artifacts or, or um, you know, detritus or 
you know, remains. And then suddenly, because of a guy digging a bridge for the Japanese during the invasion back in the 1930s, there's an entire Denisovan skull that was sitting quietly in the museum for decade after decade after decade. This is extraordinary. Oh, it happens all the time. Uh, in the 1850s, the uh, first discovery of Neanderthals in uh, that valley in Germany, which is also what they were named after. The, the valley, Neander Valley. Uh, the, yeah, well, it's yeah, Neander's Valley. There was a guy named Neander. That's a whole story. Uh, but the, they, that's... In order to prevent academics from getting into hair-pulling fights over who gets to name it after themselves, there's a standard protocol where you name something new like that after the place that it's found. Ah. Uh, and so, see, so that's why these Chinese researchers wanted to tag it as something new, because, you know, then, well, you saw it's already gotten an, an illustrated article in Scientific American and National Geographic, and but it's no, it's it's probably it's almost certainly a, a Denisovan skull, uh, which is good, because now we know what they look like, and they are probably prone to giantism. So that might be some of the giant stories, but they definitely don't look like us. But they don't look like a, a uh, an ape either. Well, um, if, if they have an so entire skull, I presume it has the jaw is still there. Their teeth and some teeth. Oh, mm-hmm. this yeah, is like, they, this they, is like this is like Christmas. This is incredible. Yeah, yeah. They haven't run the uh, they haven't run the tests yet on the uh, DNA. That's why these guys thought they, you know, sneak that in. So it's uh, if you try and look up uh, Dragon Man or yeah Dragon Man, uh, you'll get a hit off of Google. But if you try one of the um, more technical sites, you'll get nowhere. And if you try Homo Longi, which is what they uh, decided to name it, which means dragon in Mandarin, apparently. So how, uh, if, that, if, if, that hang on, hang either. on, if, if the Chinese, yeah. I, I, I will get to Tim. Tim, sorry, we will get to you momentarily. Yeah. If, if, if they're identifying it as a new branch, a new hominid branch of the family tree, mm-hmm. and you're saying it's Denisovan, how do you know what mm-hmm. they don't know? Well, because it matches in everything except the DNA, which has not yet been measured, uh, the characteristics from the few scraps we do have. It's got an improbably huge molar, which so do the uh, so does the other, the one the the jawbone that was found. Ah, in 19, so the in so the teeth so and, the teeth that we've got match what's in the skull. Right, and it's got a very it's got a very extended cranium, which is like but not identical to that of Neanderthals, because remember they had bigger, differently shaped brains than we do. Uh, but it uh, there's uh, and they yeah they also found evidence of a um, mixture. See, there are a couple of extra pieces in our DNA that haven't been cataloged. You know, we know they came from somewhere else. You know, something else. But they, there's at least two missing subspecies or precursors hmm. uh, that we have. Well, this located. is not trivial. This is major, this major news. And one last question, then yeah. we're going to get to Tim. Have the Chinese, okay. which I presume any rational academics would do, now began, begun to look through all their museums, all their stacks, all their archives hidden in the basement, dusty boxes, ancient expeditions out to the West in, in China, in other words, are they looking to see if they've got more cool stuff that nobody noticed? 
Oh, of course they are. That's always, that always happens too. Uh, last thing, I always, I started to say this. The reason I mentioned Neanderthals was that it turned out that some Neanderthal pieces, bones and stuff, had been found in some caves at the base of Gibraltar uh, like 40 years earlier. And they had been sitting in a museum ever since because everybody just said, okay, cavemen, and they, uh, they hadn't been cataloged. And it was only after the discovery in Germany that they were found. But they still get called Neanderthal because it gets named after the place it's found, even well, though they technically found I mean, those earlier. Actually, life and fate may have rescued us. Can you imagine having to say at a conference, the Gibraltarians did this, and the Gibraltarians, yeah. in other words, Neanderthal is easier. Okay, Tim. Tim Saunders uh, is a British national who loves boats and sorry, yachts Tim. and maritime. He chose his ideal career. Uh, at about the age of 10 when he decided to become a yacht designer. And lo and behold, with a lot of work and a lot of luck and a lot of, you know, what it takes, he became a yacht designer. In fact, he's working on a really cool yacht now, so we might want a little update on the yacht when we bring him on. He studied industrial design at the coveted Coventry University and is fortunate to have been chosen by many of the world's most revered yacht design studios to work on an array of live projects of different sizes, styles, and uses, doing what he affectionately calls his apprenticeship years. And you can read the rest. Tim, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for a glowing introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, there is a method to my madness. Since you are a marine architect and an engineer and a designer, I presume you've been looking at the Miami situation. I'd like each of our guests this morning, uh, Tim and Ron and Holger, to venture, if you have one, an opinion, given that there seems to be a plethora of opinions over something that really is quite remarkable. Hmm. Okay, well, I've seen the footage. I I saw it. um, I've just been studying the links on your your page as well just to make sure I didn't miss anything I have not seen the interview with the engineer but I, I do I do look forward to I look forward it's to very that. good he's really yeah. good he teaches well he starts from the sorry about this ground up and he lays mm-hmm. out these hypotheses in a way that's rational open-minded and lets us await real evidence real data for when it comes in I really am so tired of people leaping to the ET UFO nonsense model without any evidence I mean just politically if somebody wanted to do this as a distraction why not take down Trump Tower come on or any other tower for example yeah but given um, given the uniqueness of Trump in our political scheme of things you know uh, that would be the biggest bang for the buck. And if some wanted a distraction to bury the UFO report out of the Senate, which is what this theory says uh, this all happened because of, which I think is nuts, it would be, to me, New York City, the Big Apple, Fifth Avenue, Trump Tower, and you'd you, you monopolize the conversation for months, for months. Well, by saying that this in any case you're bringing attention to it Richard so let's just drop this because it's it's a speculation isn't it extraordinary un, un, see if, if, if it hadn't been the several UFO researchers that I kind of have been following their work have actually sent me serious emails proposing this 
I wouldn't have brought it up. But it's one of those things where, you know, absurd things that are not answered are assumed to be true. And I think we have to really get off the mark and answer nonsense with real facts. Otherwise, we're going to lose civilization. We cannot live in a bifurcated society where half the people believe one set of facts and the other half believe alternative facts. That way mm. lies disaster. So, I, I agree with your, your thinking. I just think that we should not bring attention to things which are pure speculation and let the facts but talk they're all, themselves. But it's already out there. Remember, we have a thing called the Internet, social media. Yeah, I know, but you're, st you're still ringing the bell, Richard. So, you you're, know, let's drop you're it. You're rooting for mayhem. <laughs> Let's go on to other things. Let's go on to what we do know. I mean, you are, you asked me a question, I think. Yeah, of course. And you asked the others a question, is what do we think happened? So I've seen the footage, uh, which was caught on video, security video camera, and we do not suspect it's been tampered in any way. So I guess it's a fairly reliable source. The building came down pretty fast, which does bring to mind you know, some of the stage, uh, studies that have been done on the 9-11 towers. Uh, where those went into free fall, all three of them, including Building 7, um, which does say, well, that came down pretty fast, so did the walls collapse below in an instance? But we, we have no speed measurement yet. We have no data to say it went into free fall. But I think one of the big differences between this building in Miami and, and the 9-11 event was the in between floors and material in, in the Twin Towers seems to just vaporize, disappear, turn to dust, whatever it is that has been termed that actually happened in that event. But you know, there was not a huge amount of rubble, yes. There's a there huge rubble, pile of debris, 30, 40 feet high. And you yeah, can see the stacked layers of concrete, unlike the World Trade Towers, where things were dustified, the material, the mass that's, just disappeared, blew away in the wind. That's what I'm saying, but in the other way around. So in the Miami event, it does seem there's a lot of debris left. So you can see the different layers of pancake, pan the floors pancaked into each other. So there's, it, it looks to me like uh, it, it was an accidental event. It looks to me like, as you say, that the steel could well have um, deteriorated due to corrosion and it lost its tensile strength and therefore the concrete became like an empty shell that was no longer being supported. And maybe that was the moment that it decided to go, let go. I don't know. But uh, the question is why? Well, it, if it was deliberate, then you can see there's some very shiny new homes along that same, same seafront. And this was like a, a fairly old building. 40, 40 years. Okay, well, it didn't look as shiny as the other ones. So, for example, what comes to mind is if somebody wants to do a land grab, and this is a pretty vicious land grab, if this does speculation does come play out but the point is if somebody wants to take that land over and put another new shiny building on there and make some money then they may be may may have wished to bring the building down somehow but you would think you would ask the people sleeping inside to get out first so you know it's well there was all kinds of forewarning there apparently were creaks and groans a couple of days before, people on the phones to relatives reported it. Uh, that very night, there were weird noises. Um, going back at least five or six years, apparently the engineers have measured the ground sinking at the rate of a few millimeters per year 
under this specific building. And mm. Florida is notorious because of the olytic limestone again, porous as a piece of Swiss cheese for what are called sinkholes. So when they say this was un, unprecedented and unannounced, the more you look at the details, the more the evidence comes out, including this uh, engineering report from 2018. This building had a lot of problems. Parts of it were sinking. It did not have a box beam construction, so there's nothing other than the tension of the steel in those slabs literally holding it up. How much of a differential angle, uh, Tim, does it take before the shearing forces on the steel that's holding the slabs to the side of the of the building before they shear off and then you get a bang, 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 pancaking, you know, collapse because it's one floor on another, on another, on another as they fall together. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot when, once it goes past the you know, safety margin. But I mean, yeah. the thing is, as you mentioned, the steel could well have corroded due to the sea mist. Well, we know from the engineering about. guy's report in 2018 it was corroding. And his, oh. his report re reads like a four-alarm fire and nothing was done. No. That gets the other thing, agreed. The other thing is, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing that's worth mentioning is that you know, the multiple visits I've made to Miami and Fort Lauderdale areas, they're continually increasing the height of the roads because of the sinkage and the sea level issue. So, you know, when you, when you, you know, move weights around, you, you take land away from somewhere and you put it somewhere else, then you're also displacing and perhaps disturbing the, uh, the substrate of the, you know, you also have those buildings that are built on sand, basically, aren't they, aren't they at these beaches? I've well, they have, to, they have to drive projects. the pilings deep into the limestone. But here's another question I have. Um, isn't concrete a hygroscopic material, meaning it acts like a sponge? And given that the water table is like two feet below the surface in Florida, even if you drive pilings and sink concrete, you know, 50 feet down, isn't that going to wick up salt water, which will then begin corrode the steel in an inevitable mm -hmm. process? And this has been going on for 40 years with nobody doing any major, you know, reconstruction. Uh, it, it, to me, it's almost like there's been a clock ticking and it's now struck midnight and there's a whole bunch of other engineering and architecture that we need to be looking at proactively, vigorously, because this could just be the beginning of mixing our metaphors madly, a, a, a set of dominoes falling all over the country. I think this is the most likely scenario, absolutely. I, I did some project studies a few years ago on actually creating a, a the, the project was to design it and build a huge floating um, floating building, which would, in all intents and purposes, look like a mega yacht, but in fact it would be a building. And you know, we, we calculated using steel for the hull and, and aluminium for certain parts and composite Obviously, the higher you go, the lighter you want to go in order to maintain a sort of a safe uh, center of gravity. Because even though this was, uh, it, it was a building, it was still a floating building. So it, obviously, the stability was very important. But we, we did look into the possibility of building the whole Megiot-looking vessel 
uh, from concrete. And we went to great lengths. Uh, some members of my team went to visit the university in, in uh, research department in the university in Germany. I forget which, which city it was now. But we came back with quite a conclusive report. Yes, it's possible. But the molds uh, required in order to create the shapes would be far so, so, so much more expensive than it would be simply to build it from steel and to protect it properly uh, against corrosion. But anyway, I'm digressing slightly, but yes, there have been concrete harbors, there have been concrete well, walls. Well, didn't Kaiser during World War II build Liberty ships out of concrete? I believe, I believe, yes. I mean, he, um, he turned them out like they were turning out two or three a day or something. It was an incredible mass production effort. And he literally poured the damn hulls out of concrete and then covered them with something so they didn't wick up the uh, seawater. That's, that's the key point. And to come back to your point is, yes, that the concrete needs to be sealed. And when it becomes uh, water impermeable, it, it, it is then something which can survive. But as soon as water goes into the actual matrix of the concrete, then, yes, it starts to uh, corrode. But... Again, that said, the Romans used to build sea defences from their version of concrete, and they used to put an additive in. Um, but, you know, one thing is to have a sea defence, and another thing is to have a ship or a building. So, mm. uh, hmm. Okay, um, we've got about three minutes till the top of the hour. Uh, Holger or Ron, do you have any thoughts on the subject of Miami before we move on to something much more relevant to yeah. our discussion? Uh, yeah, it's, I think Tim has a point about it could have been, uh, sabotaged to some degree, but, you know, they would have expected it would take long enough that people would say, oh, this place is creaking, I'm getting out of here, and everybody would have vacated, because the, uh, he's right about the property values and everything else there, and there was supposed to be an, uh, structural safety engineer or something was scheduled to be there the day before, they did something on the roof, and the question that's been raised is, yeah. did, did they put anomalous mass on top, going back to Tim's idea that you want the mass on the bottom because of center of gravity, and was it like one feather, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, the force that literally triggered the shearing on, the, on those tension-constructed uh, uh, steel uh, rebar-reinforced slabs? In other words... The engineering deconvolution mm -hmm. of what happened, I think, is going to be critical because we have a huge amount of aging infrastructure in this country that's not been touched in decades and is just a, a terrible tragedy again and again just waiting to happen. And this could be, again, mixing our metaphors, the uh, canary in the mine. No, I think I think that's very plausible. It's just if this one got so much publicity because of the loss of life and the um, rather horrific spectacle of yeah. the thing coming down. All uh, right, that, we are uh, at the uh, they, we are at the um, bottom of the hour. I think we're at the bottom of the hour. No, we're at the top of the hour. Gosh, how time does fly. Mm. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Holger Eisenberg, Tim Saunders, and Ron Gerbron. You can read their bios on the guest page at the other side of midnight. Uh, each of them has a diverse perspective on what we're going to talk next, which is construction techniques and scale and the impossibilities of doing what I think from the data was done, namely huge, ancient 
domes across the solar system. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.